In Houston, I'm John Herter. It's Tuesday, the 24th day of October. Great as always to have you along, everybody. From the experts is a virtual networking opportunity accelerator, helping leaders across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive format. It's like a TED Talk with interaction. If all goes well, your curiosity sparks new ideas, accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself or somebody else solve that problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. Welcome to the sixth episode in our series of Helping Business Leaders Solving Problems with AI in partnership with Hewlett Packard Enterprises. On the show today, AI use cases across industries, whether it's automotive, energy, hospital, healthcare, manufacturing, public sector, retail, and more. Folks, help me in welcoming our guest experts, Andrew Taylor and Craig Dillman. With nearly 20 years in the business from core data center to hybrid IT, Andrew has worn many hats, including IT administrator, data center architect, product manager, and now NVIDIA Alliance manager with HPE, where he's been working closely with industry leaders developing AI and generative AI use cases. Craig has a similar background to Andrew, but with more gray hair. In recent years, he's led HP efforts in North America on edge computing and AI ISV alliances. He now works with solutions lead for the NVIDIA Alliance at the HPE team. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for stopping by, you know, to walk through these AI use case applications uh, in these different industries. With that, Andrew, take it from here. Awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Let me make sure I, I'm assuming my screen is up. Yes. Awesome. So I, I, I want to thank you for having me for, you know, from the experts series. We've got several great use cases we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> I, I don't have time to cover every single use case. I saw that we had a lot of different uh, people in the room, manufacturing. I know we've got education in the room. I'll, I'll make sure I spend a little extra time there. I've got some great use cases, one that we're actually using inside of HPE. So we'll go through some of those use cases specific to computer vision. Okay. Then we're going to move into kind of a new area. You, you may know it as metaverse. You know, Facebook or Meta has made it extremely popular. Um, we have a great solution between NVIDIA and HPE focused on Omniverse. So we'll talk about digital twin and how that can help product design, building out a new school, uh, building out a new hospital, et cetera. So there's a lot of great things there that we'll cover. And then I'll switch us over to Craig Dillman, who you just heard is my solutions lead here in Americas. And he'll cover generative AI. And he'll go through some of the use cases. And I, I imagine everybody on this call has a concept of what generative AI is, right? ChatGPT has kind of taken the world by storm. It took what was in national labs and the government and some high-end industry and brought it down to uh, uh, students, quite frankly. My, my son, he's 10 years old. He has used ChatGPT to learn about our presidents, for example. Right, so it's, it's taking it down and it's spread it out to everybody across the world and gave them an access to a resource, quite frankly, that will accelerate our education, accelerate what we can do inside of a company and really accelerate our time to value, which is what we're trying to do with AI, right? So with that, I will exit out of this survey and we'll get started. So the first use case that I wanna chat about is computer vision. Computer vision is, Simply put, it's taking a video camera, you know, high-def video camera, and it's ad adding human intelligence to it. So how, how did we used to have to do it? Well, I used to have to have a button, a seat, 
watching multiple screens, looking for anomalies that I can then react to, right? So today we have plethora of use cases across multiple industries. I'm gonna cover a few on this screen. I hope that when we get to the discussion part of this conversation, that you guys, if I didn't cover something that you're interested in, that you bring it up and we actually discuss it. I'm sure that others on this call will wanna learn about it. So with that, let's get started. We'll talk first about public sector, right? And I'll give you some examples. Sometimes I can't use customer names for obvious reasons. If they haven't signed an agreement to be a public source, I can't give those names, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about real world examples. So one of the largest cities in the United States is looking at taking advantage of cameras above traffic uh, cams, basically, and, and deploying robots with cameras, 360 degree view. The point of this is to A, look at traffic management, look at flow of people, but more importantly, how do I notify EMTs? How do I notify police? How do I keep my police safe when there is a disturbance, when something is happening? And it can be as simple as, you know, someone fell and they're not getting up, dispatch EMT services, or it can be something as severe as there's a shooting, right? And the robot or the camera has detected someone with a weapon and it is being discharged or it's at least in sight. That can quickly be sent to the police force that then dispatches units to deal with the situation. You know, obviously keeping, you know, people safe in cities is of utmost concern. And, and that kind of spills over to education, right? If I'm talking about cities and public sector, education is a, a big factor in how we keep our students safe. And being able to take human level intelligence and apply it to video cameras and spread, you know, beyond the employees that you have there in the school to help deploy and maintain the resources that you have is critical to protecting students. So that can be threat detection, which I just talked about in the city's example, right? Seeing someone with a weapon or maybe a fight breaks out, or I, I know a lot of school districts and you know I, I have a few connections there are dealing with vaping. You know, smoke sensors don't detect vaping, but cameras can. So little things like that, that we can add a little value in, keep the students safe, keep drugs out of the schools. And then more importantly, we can tie to other systems like smart metal detectors for access control, being able to identify who went through, who set off the detector, and then how do we deploy those services to make sure that we check that student before they enter the building or check parents before they enter the building. So there's a lot of different use cases when you have to add human intelligence to it, right? And I, I'm going to keep going through these use cases, then I'm going to bring in some people to talk about uh, different ones within here that I know I've worked with. We'll do that during the discussion piece. Uh, I'm going to flip to airports. I'm trying to keep it in the same vein, and then I'll I'll move to some of the manufacturing ones because I know we have manufacturing here on this call. But if I look at airports, I'm working with one of the largest airliner uh, here in the United States, and we have deployed uh, 4K cameras at each of the gates. And what we're looking for is how do we improve time to getting on the plane, cut back on delays, Make sure that everything that has to be done is done. We don't, we don't want a plane taking off with a, a low tire or a maintenance check that needs to happen, right? So if we can physically inspect the plane, put back on how long it takes to do those inspections, make sure fuel's being dispatched on time, ensure that your bags have made it onto the plane. All of that is being done today. Um, I'll, I'll mention the airport. So at Houston Airport, um, to help facilitate speed to, to travel, 
for you. And I know that's important for every one of us on this call because we all travel at some point. And more importantly, and this happened to me, uh, again, I can't mention the airline, but when I went overseas, you know, being notified on the app that my bag has made it on the plane is a comfort that you just immediately experience, right? So how can we improve time to delivery, in this case for airports and flights, how can we improve comfortability for customers, make sure that they get on the plane on time, that their luggage is on the time, and that they make it to the destination on time? All of that can be done with computer vision. So there's a lot of really neat use cases, and it can go beyond that, obviously, threat detection and some of the other examples I gave in public sector. But just improving quality of life is huge when we talk about uh, computer vision or video analytics. I'm going to switch to two other ones, and then I'll move on to the next topic. So manufacturing, I, he I heard several people join the call for manufacturing. We actually utilize Relometrics here at HPE to look at our systems and make sure that the configurations that you guys have us build are accurate. And we are catching that in near real time. So do they have the right amount of dim sticks? Do they have the CPUs installed? Do they have the GPUs installed? All of that is being looked at in real time to ensure that we have 100% accuracy or near 100% accuracy when we send you your order. So we are actually taking advantage of that here at HPE. We know of several other customers taking advantage of defect detection, making sure that there's no defects in the product that they're building as it goes through the assembly line. I, I know a food manufacturer is looking for quality of the food as it goes down the line to make sure that there's no contamination. There's lots of areas. And then if I go beyond that, um, there's a lot of OSHA regulations in industrial sites and manufacturing, making sure someone's wearing the appropriate gear. So if you've already deployed cameras for defect detection or for accuracy and configurations, then deploying cameras and tying that in to also look at workplace safety to make sure those items are being worn by the employees, that they're in between the yellow lines that are marked on the manufacturing floor and they're not venturing out if they're not supposed to, having those in place can really help prevent accidents and quite frankly, help with insurance costs, right? I'm gonna skip to one last one and then we'll go to digital twins. So retail stores, this is a huge area for us. We have numerous wins with the top five retail stores uh, here in North America. Um, from anywhere between theft prevention to automated scanning of items where you can go in and you can scan your items and we can have cameras looking at that to make sure that theft isn't being done. One of the big things was putting one item on top of another, right? Scanning the cheaper item on the bottom and then stealing the top item. So we have cameras in place at different stores across America that can actually look at that and the computer, the server can detect whether that's being done. Um, and and I, I will tell you, it's really good because I've been into some of these retailers buying groceries and I, I'll grab two items. I'll scan the first one. I'll turn to put it in the bag. But the second that second item crosses the threshold, um, there's a video of me doing it. So I, I know it's working. Sometimes it's inconvenient in that example in particular, uh, but it's really cutting back on theft and it's saving customers hundreds of thousands of dollars every year in per store. So if we think of a giant retailer with hundreds or thousands of stores, uh, 100 grand per year per store is pretty significant if we think of that. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, so you can see there's other examples on this slide, happy to talk about them if one of them is of interest, but for sake of time, I'm gonna keep us moving. The other big thing I wanna talk about is digital twin. You know, 
Facebook has really made this popular. NVIDIA has seen a opportunity here to help manufacturing facilities, to help uh, national labs, to help hospitals for that matter, uh, build digital twins of products, of actual buildings and construction sites. I'm actually working with an energy company right now to build out a state-of-the-art nuclear facility inside of a digital twin so that they can walk our Congress people through that example to make sure that it gets approval from our federal government. So there's all kinds of applications here that can help cut back on time to delivery. And I'll give you a, an interesting example. I was at the largest healthcare conference here in the US, HIMSS, and I was talking to a hospital and I was telling them about Digital Twin and how we can replicate hospital rooms, for example, and what that may look like to them and how that can help speed to patient recovery, giving less steps, making sure the right tools are in place, and as I was talking about it, he looked at me and he goes, oh my gosh, I, I wish I would have deployed this. I just built a hospital and they forgot the data center. So they had to spend $100,000 retrofitting and expanding a closet and putting AC units in there to cool this smaller confined space. And that could have been avoided with a walkthrough from the various teams within the hospital. So, you know, little applications like that to larger applications like the one I'm showing here, where NVIDIA has partnered with uh, some of our national labs to build a earth digital twin. And their objectives, which are quite you know, high, is to improve prediction of extreme weather to give people quicker notice to escaping um, a hurricane or a tornado, um, to start projecting climate change and its impact and how we can you know, migrate people or get the right resources in place to help tackle those challenges. And, and you know, it goes this big to something like you know, for example, BMW, rebuilding all 30 plus manufacturing facilities in a digital world to help them reduce planning times, improve flexibility and precision. So one of the interesting things about BMW is 99% of their products are custom. For each one of the cars they have, they have almost 100 different options that you can choose inside that car. So having a facility as a digital twin and running those examples in real time using the ability to put sensors on humans to see how they move, to see how you can speed up time to delivery, is all real applicable, applicable value that you can bring to your customer base if you're a manufacturer. I mean, all the way down to the robotics art. And one of the neat things that came out of this, and this is small, so if you look at this, they got 30% efficiency improvement by building this in the digital world. 30% efficiency improvement, which is just astronomical in the terms of you know, where we've gone from the days of Ford building a Model T all the way to a state-of-the-art facility like what BMW has partnered with us to do. But one of the things that I grabbed on whenever they were telling me this story was as they were going through this and designing it, they realized that they were buying tables over and over again. And when they investigated that, it was because of the height of the employee. But they, they only caught on to it because they were going through these simulations and they were seeing employees kind of bend down a little too far or reach up, which can cause back problems, right? Uh, so by getting a table that adjusts, they were able to save anywhere between seventy dollars to $100,000 per facility because they're not having to order multiple tables uh, for the same station. So um, all fascinating stuff. You know, I, I again, let's talk about this in the open discussion, but I'm going to pass it to Mr. Dillman. Uh, to talk about generative AI. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. 
Uh, like you said early on, you can't you can't go anywhere today without hearing about generative AI or Chat GPT. It's kind of like the uh, it's the Taylor Swift and and uh, Travis Kelsey of of the uh, infrastructure or the uh, technology world right now. You can't you can't go anywhere without hearing about them. There's a reason for that though, of course, and and that is because it's it's so transformative. So Andrew's talked about computer vision and you know its its ability to detect and identify and a digital twin environment can simulate other ai also makes you know predictions uh, generative ai is really helpful to extend those functions into a more extensive more accessible uh, kind of format to you know the, the capability to generate text images media in general uh, even code is it becomes more interactive to humans as as we try to apply these technologies. So you can understand, I'm sure we all can, that why it's so transformative, why there's so much hype uh, right now around it. The you know the one of the real real kind of magic uh, or the accelerators that generative AI I think brings is is that ability to really quickly summarize, classify, and contextualize vast amounts of data and then make it accessible through a natural language interface, something that we can interact with. And so there's there are use cases all over all industries, all enterprises, kind of like Andrew was showing you earlier in computer vision, lots of ways to take advantage of it. It's the same thing in, in with, with generative AI. And if you think just kind of at the top left there to begin with, information management is, is um, a good way to build one of the major themes of what our, we see customers building Gen AI use cases around. So summarizing documents and files into easy to digest notes or, or bullet points, right? I don't, I can't remember if Zoom does this. I know I use Teams. Teams has the capability of create, automating the creation of notes from meetings, uh, not just transcribing the voice that it hears, but creating notes and, and minutes uh, from those. Uh, you can build on that, of course, and one of the main functions that we see come out of generative AI is, is an AI chatbot. So creating a chat interface that has access to specific domain knowledge, a knowledge base consisting of relevant information for, for your data. You can, you can think about how you could apply this across multiple verticals. Public sector is an interesting one to me. Think about uh, policymakers and staffers civil servants, or even like the procurement side of a, of a public uh, entity, being able to take sometimes, you know, very, very large hundreds of pages of dense academic or legal text and uh, summarizing that in seconds that can break down these kind of complex content into plain language. I, I'd love, <clears throat> I'd love to be able to have that in, in some of my university training in the past, like something that can quickly summarize this, uh, this, this large volume of data. Drug discovery is another, another way. So get out of kind of the text way of thinking and, and being able to read a protein, a protein's amino acid sequencing, and then predict the structure of a target protein that that uh, compound could, could actually work well against, doing that in seconds. It has real, real value to our pharmaceutical customers in <clears throat> Being able to find new compounds, new drugs that usually takes, you know, months and years uh, in their sequence, they're, they're seriously accelerating that. Another another um, industry that has maybe the most mature list of generative AI use cases is the financial services 
uh, industry. So whether it's enterprise search or uh, pricing and risk uh, algorithms or document management or customer service, back to that AI chatbot again, or even marketing, creating personalized content and email to increase customer you know, conversion, click conversion, uh, all the way down to financial advice. There's a lot of places where generative AI, that large language model, natural language processing, plays into uh, FSI. I want to talk, speaking of FSI, talk just for a minute here about one of the customers that we have worked with. It's a, it's a large international bank, and uh, they engaged with us in a, in a POC, specifically their cash management department, was seeing a lot of RFPs that they had to respond to. And they used, uh, working with working with our teams, a first draft program that would create this kind of first draft of an RFP response. Is that what they eventually ended up sending to a customer, the RFP response? No, uh, but it's a first draft that allows their cash management team to say, okay, I've got 80% of what I need for this already created for me in minutes. I can go tweak the pieces that I need and spend a lot more time at uh, customer-facing interactions rather than kind of those top-of-the-funnel customer response activities. Uh, a nice bonus as part of this POC was in additionally including this virtual assistant that the cash management team can use to go interface with that. Ask natural language questions about facts and figures of the bank uh, and receive answers that they can use with references included, right? not just like uh, a a made up answer, but I can actually reference to where this data can be found, which is important in the RFP response. So uh, the, the time savings and the quality of information that was generated both in the RFP response draft and by this virtual assistant was, was very impressive to our customer and are looking at additional use cases where they can expand this. I'd like to invite Bianca DePriest, who's part of the HPE AI team. She's worked more closely with this customer Add a little bit of color, if you can, Bianca, to what, what you saw working with this bank uh, that we're talking about now. And then if you've got time, maybe talk a little bit about how uh, software development tasks can be accelerated by generative AI. Bianca? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing me in. Um, so yes, I got to work directly in, and I've gotten to work directly um, with quite a few enterprises and public sector kind of three-letter agencies, you know, on their generative AI exploration or even like getting this thing into production journeys the past, you know, six, eight months, ever since, you know, ChatGPT really blew up. Um, and what I think is really interesting, especially about this large global bank, and it's kind of a, a consistent theme across use cases is with this large global bank, you know, we knew that this team was spending 60% of their time just manually, you know, looking up those RFP questions and answers. And, you know, they had, you know, put together this long, long list of, of data of all the questions and answers they've they've ever, you know, answered and asked. And, and so um, with that amount of time, you can think of, you know, what that FTE return is for the business and not only saving, let's say it was even, you know, 20% of their time um, doing this manual efforts, but the amount of time that these cash management experts can now go focus on revenue generating activity. Um, I think that business case is what gave us the freedom to really have this, you know, support this uh, large global bank and really get buy-in from you know, some of the highest level uh, of the of the bank, you know, at, at the board level. And so um, 
I think that's one thing that I'd, I'd love to share, you know, across all the use cases is really searching for, you know, what is the business impact if we are able to save um, or if we are able to implement this Gen AI use case. So always starting out there seems to be the right thing. Um, we also have a, a client that, that recently um, signed on and they're doing um, some generative AI with code generation. So um, internally to help their code creators uh, um, and they have, you know, maybe it's 10,000 engineers. Um, so when you think about the impact that these, you know, code generation um, use cases has for these engineers, um, so that was really, really impactful. And there's a few different ways to, you know, um, get power from these Gen AI use cases. Um, and there's a few different ways to scope out, you know, what's the right thing for me to do? Can we just fine tune? You've probably heard of, you know, this RAG acronym, um, all things that we could, you know, chat about at another time. But um, my point being, there's a lot of ways to do it. It doesn't have to be a big, scary, we're going to build a chat GPT on our own. Um, but what can be most impactful is absolutely focusing on that business case, first and foremost. So um, I'll, I'll pass it back. I think it's to, to Andrew. Um, but thanks again for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you, Bianca, for sharing that with us. So I, I, I'm going to flash one screen. I want to thank you guys for listening to the short maybe a little longer presentation than we intended, but still a short presentation. Craig's and my contact information is on the screen right now. Um, at this point, I'm going to stop sharing and we can kind of go into open discussion. And if John would let me, I'd like to start with public sector. That sounds great. So folks, if you're new to the show, just like Andrew said, be thinking about that experience that you want to share, whether it's public sector, manufacturing, whatever, and you can either share it by raising your hand and uh, we'll let you use your voice or you can put it in the chat as you've been doing. Uh, and if you'd kindly just introduce yourself within two seconds, you know, who you are and what your business is, that'd be super helpful. So Andrew, uh, how do you want to take it from here? You want to talk back about uh, public sector, was it? Yeah, I, I, I would like to tee up uh, Dr. Gocher. You know, he's okay. been involved in education for quite some time. We talked a little bit about the importance of computer vision helping keep our children safe. Uh, I'd love to get a perspective from you on that and what schools in Arkansas in particular are looking at and what they're trying to do to tackle that challenge. Excellent. And, and Andrew, and this is my 35th year in education, my eighth as a superintendent, and my how we've shifted in the way that we budget for a new school year. Um, Currently, my school district has 2,093 students and growing. Um, we have two weapons detection systems in our schools, one at the middle school and high school. Every employee has a panic button that's directly tied to the office or if pressed often enough, it would uh, initialize uh, 911 in, in the event of a, of a campus emergency. Uh, John Nathan can help me on this, but I know we have hundreds of security cameras. We have four school resource officers and eight um, commissioned school security officers. And I'm one of those security officers on, in, in my district. So, folks, things have shifted completely. Um, with John Nathan's help, we use our security cameras often to replay videos over a weekend or replay videos in a hallway to be able to determine um, misbehavior of a student. And guys, with this incredible conversation, we're looking forward to having with this um, 
generative, is, did I pronounce that right? Generative AI. How can we be a little smarter when we're looking at these cameras? How do we integrate our cameras that can be intuitive, that can alert us when a student brandishes a weapon or a, or a fight is breaking out outside of a of a, of a teacher's um, eye shot and ear shot? So, Andrew, this opens up a big door for us in education. Jump in. Yeah, I, I was just going to jump in. So when we talk about you know cameras, one of the interesting things in one of our partners, so for you, those of you on the call, if you look at the top ISVs, independent software vendors that do AI in 2021, and then look at 2022, you may find five similar companies. So what HP has done is we look at specific ISVs that we think have longevity in this space. Mm -hmm. And one of those ISVs that we've looked at specific to computer vision is Iron Yon. And one of the neat things that they can do is they can actually take the cameras that you have deployed today, as long as they meet, you know, high def, 4K, uh, high def's 1080p, right? So if it meets those specs and they're IP cameras, we can take advantage of those cameras today, network them in, apply Iron Young software to it with our hardware and start adding video analytics to look for those threats or to, um, you know, tag videos that you don't have to go look at hours of time, it will just show you where the anomaly is, right? That you're trying to detect. So, um, you know, I, I know in school districts, that's huge. In manufacturing, that's a big one. In cities, that's huge. Public spaces in general, hotel, hospitality, uh, entertainment, and stadiums. All of that is looking at protecting their clientele, their students, their customers, as they go into these different arenas, right? So having partners like that, I, I, you know, I say that to just emphasize the importance of we do the pre-work so you don't have to grab a random software company and try to go down that path, right? We, we have actually given Iron Young technology, servers, GPUs, prox memory to test and validate with. That way you don't have to do that. And then more importantly, as you get down to, you know, like, you know, if Dr. Gocher wants to try one of these out, we have DL320s that we can send to you that you can hook up and actually attempt a, your use case. And we can get Iron Young experts, we can get our experts there and help you with that. And that, that spans, you know, public sector here that, that spans across manufacturing, other arenas with video capabilities. Thanks, Andrew. That's very helpful. Yeah, thank you. Uh uh, thanks very much. Uh, Bianca, have you had a chance to see, are there any questions that we haven't answered that are in the chat? Um, so there are, you know, some questions along the lines of, um, you know, weighing out, uh, weighing out the ROI of a generative AI use case um, versus the, the building of it. Um, and I guess the the direct question is just examples of project balances. Um, so so with that, I think from Ariana, I could go ahead and and take a stab at it, and and maybe we can keep it pushing. I know there's some questions around consumption and power for ChatGPT, um, but first starting out with the project balance and the cost of AI application, um, I think on the on the very front end of any sort of you know AI project. Um, and I'll probably, you know, sound redundant here with with talking about the business case. But I think starting out with the business case is always, you know, the number one thing that has to be done. Um, what's the, you know, revenue expected gain? What's the, um, 
you know, total cost of operation reduction that we could get. Um, what's the, you know, risk that we could, you know, like, so essentially um, de-risking, you know, less school shootings potentially if there's, you know, object detection of, um, of a gun before someone ever even comes into the school. So um, I guess my point being is the mission, like how important is this? Um, what's the ROI benefit? What's the risk benefit? Um, and then mapping from there onto what are the use cases that could make sense for you, um, starting to weigh out, you know, what kind of model, do I have the right personas internally, what I have to consult, um, do I have to maintain? So there's a whole lot of factors um, and a lot of levers that you can pull when it comes to here's the expected ROI for my use case um, and, you know, that desired outcome of where I want to go and then just kind of pulling those along the entire journey. So I can't give a very like just, you know, perfect answer here for you. Um, but I once again, start with that business case and really understand like what you need, like what is performant to you in this use case, like for this model. Um, and from there, you can start understanding like, how you at least get that model to that state and how are you going to make the impact that you've promised either your board, your business leaders, um, whoever it may be. Um, and then I'm yeah, sure there's a couple it. more in there. John. There's one I, I, I'm going to tackle just because I, I just spent a time in New York City last week and um, got to meet with a few customers that were looking at power consumption. So Andreas asked specifically about power consumption of chat GPT. There's two concerns, right? The power consumption when you ask it to respond and it does take up, I, I don't know per request, it's how many lines it types is kind of how you determine. But to get a paragraph response, it takes six ounces of water to cool the system. So we've been partnering with, and I'm gonna, because we have a press release, I'll actually give you a name. We've been partnering with Crusoe Energy to look at sustainable generative AI solutions. Now they're a hoster, so they're taking advantage of wind farms and solar farms, right? And being able to collect that energy and supply it to their generative AI systems that you can, you know, go through a service provider in this case and rent those systems out. They're also working on running them a little hotter and taking a higher failure rate. So it's not using and consuming as much water. So we do have several different companies. There's also a startup that we're working with, but they're, they're not, they're private. So I can't share their name. Um, that's looking at doing the same thing specifically in Texas. And I, I bring that up because I see your background. Uh, Andreas, do you have any follow-up on that? I have a uh, follow-up. Thanks very much. I, I was thinking that Sorry. certainly this is probably a hidden threat. I, I think we we all want to, to really use AI for multiple things. We forget, of course, our brain and our colleagues are so much more energy efficient, probably three or four orders of magnitude energy efficient, making decisions. Of course, we cannot use our brains for the quantity, but I think maybe that's a threat we need to tackle right away. Otherwise, we're going to really overwhelm the, the, the grid. We're going to may, maybe even uh, jeopardize the energy transition because uh, renewable energy is to decarbonize existing demand of energy, not to satisfy newer demands for energy, which may not exist today. That's exactly right. And that's why we're making partnerships strategically. You know, we've got um, data centers being built at Niagara Falls, for example, getting as close to the source as possible um, for clean energy. And of course, you know, you've probably seen announcements from our government 
here in the U.S. that they're investing into next-gen nuclear facilities, right? And we're partnering with them as well. Yeah, on top of what Andrew's talking about uh, at the uh, at the kind of the power generation and the grid level where HPE is 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 focused, uh, there's also some things we're doing kind of at the at the technology innovation side to be able to help our customers harness uh, underutilized compute resources. And so if you think about um, Andrew's example of Relometrics that, that is doing the computer vision, uh, quality assurance checking of an assembly line, well, uh, there is some point in the day, potentially, maybe not at that factory, I mean, they, they might run seven by 24, but let's say they, they close for the weekend or they close in the evenings, they don't have a third shift I've got a computer or two managing multiple lines that have some GPUs sitting in them unused. Same thing for your grocery store uh, environment, right? At some point, the the Kroger or the Safeway or the, the you know the the Whole Foods closes for the for the evening, and you've got some edge compute resources unused. We have a way that we're that we're working with our customers with to just kind of tap into those distributed and unused compute resources to offload some of the tasks for AI model training or retraining uh, that may not need to happen you know, during the daytime hours, how do you go ahead and use some of the resources that you've already got in play as opposed to deploying a new cluster, Andreas, that maybe you know, takes yeah. 14 I think, kilowatts in a rack? And I think, Craig, what you're saying is not only uh, utilizing uh, idle CPU capacity, but also utilizing idle wind farm capacity probably at night not many people have the lights on or their dishwashers on so therefore maybe uh, it's, uh, the energy that you have it's it's zero emissions and you can use it and the other opportunity i heard which i'm very happy to hear in texas the the cryptocurrency of course uh, banks which is essentially an, an adjunct to this technology can be used as a demand response uh, source so when the grid has trouble, they shut down, they slow down. And that can be also used for AI. If, if you have a request and you don't have to get it right away, say, give us a, maybe an hour or whatever, we are really trying to balance demand. Yeah, I guess Thanks, one Andrea. other thing I'll, I'd add to that is there are also creative ways um, where you can do certain things like early stop experimentation. So. Um, you know, HP has software um, that helps with this distributed training um, that Craig was talking about, but also, you know, there's a way to detect, okay, if I'm a data scientist and I have to run 100 experiments and I have some certain thresholds where I realize, okay, this, you know, 80 of these experiments are probably not going to be very performant because in reality, they're just looking for the one. Um, and so we have some some really creative ways baked into essentially the software where we can see that these experiments are low performing, automatically stop them so that they're not using compute resources. Um, so not only do you get, you know, more of the, you know, ethical AI of, of um, just doing better on, on not using so much power for the models that you're building, but also you can align it to, you know, reducing the technical debt that your organization is is incurring from, from some of these activities. Uh, Barb Hansen, I'm kind of calling you out here, but are you able to share uh, the exercise you just went through with your own team? Something about that? Um, hi, I'm the VP of, oh, let me turn my camera on so you can see me. Uh, I'm the VP of product at a knowledge capture transfer space 
industrial product. So we're in the infrastructure space. Um, interesting, Andrew Taylor mentioned the uh, nuclear power plant. We have we uh, one of our customers is Exelon. Um, so we are familiar with the additional challenges around large language models and generative AI in these spaces. Um, you know, shutting down a nuclear power plant, perhaps blowing it up because of a hallucination is not particularly good. Uh, <laughs> so um, we, we're, we're moving really slowly with a lot of industry partners in that space. A um, couple of, I'll just throw out a couple of pain points that we've talked to um, customers about. Obviously, hallucinations are a problem, right? Um, that's a problem, <laughs> right? And when and when and if to use a generative AI solution versus um, intelligent search to find the right document on a SharePoint or connecting with an external expert, and that's the sort of uh, that, that's another challenge that we face. Uh, there's some challenges around, um, and I'll throw this out as a pain point, and maybe the team can answer, is, um, you know, having experts in the field um, needing additional expert information. Is that expert willing to take the answer from a generative AI tool? It's great if a, if a company comes sure. up with a generative AI solution, but if the people that the solution was built for don't trust that um, solution, they're going to find a workaround. Um, yeah, and then your software I would agree fails. With that. Yeah. So that's yeah, one of the things it. that we're working on in our research with companies is what is that design factor to encourage um, usage specifically around expert experts who need additional expert information. So I'm going to throw that out and see if anybody's got some thoughts on, on the the actual usage of the tool outside of sort of customer service and data analysis in the in a in a expert right if i don't if i don't believe what you're telling me i'm going to do what i'm going to do right. whether there's a generative ai right. tool or not so i'll just stop and let people respond to that yeah i'd, I'd love to take the first stab um primarily around the the expert piece that you mentioned barb so um for the international bank that we spoke of, um, originally the data science team tried creating the cash management and they are subject matter experts, like very, very experts um, where, where it was, they're even nervous about talking with us about questions and answers because you know their subject matter expertise is absolutely what differentiates them you know, from other banks. So they were very paranoid about any of that getting getting out there. But the data science team that we worked with originally created them this search instead of, you know, it was before chat GPT, you know, big craze going on. Um, and the search didn't suffice for the experts. A couple of reasons, one being, you know, the search didn't, couldn't tell the difference between like, what does FX mean in cash management? And so these subject matter experts, you know, judge that very harshly of, oh, well, if this search doesn't even know what that acronym is, then, right. you know, what, what are we doing here? Um, but the but the next phase, um, so when we built the model that we built, um, we actually used, um, and I don't want to get too technical, a, a RAG use case. So essentially, um, we showed the chat GPT type model. It was never, it was never trained on specific cash management data and, and all the things out there. Um, so we showed the, you know, silly model, uh, which actually is pretty smart. But then we showed the model that was trained on the cash management specific information. Um, and so you would see something like, you know, who is the CEO of this bank? 
the pre-trained model that was not trained on this uh, domain-specific uh, information, it would spit out a hallucination, it would spit out a wrong answer. And then we showed the model that we trained and helped this organization build, it would show the right answer. Not only would it show the right answer, we then showed the three different sources of where that chat pulled the answer. And so when I think about the use case for subject matter experts, it's really, really important, one, to set expectations of, what can this model do? And, you know, this model is going to get smarter after time of, you know, questions and answers. Like it's not going to be perfect, just like, you know, human beings answers aren't going to be perfect. But the next really, really important piece was those sources. So, so not only could the subject matter experts say this is hallucinating, this isn't making sense, um, or it could show new information that that subject matter expert now wants to go dig into and can go click on these links and, and go see for themselves. So that was specifically what we ensured we included to really solve for the huge challenge that you bring up, um, which is subject matter experts and expectations of this chat. Yeah, it's interesting. We we have fallen into the same uh, solution model of show, show sources, right? Yeah. And then uh, set expectations. Well, <laughs> um, it, it's... Uh, I'm happy. We're going to continue researching on this, and I'm happy to to continue to share our findings because there's some big challenges that generative AI could help with if there's pickup, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to do it right in in this sort of large infrastructure industrial space. So, thanks very much, Barb and uh, Bianca. Obviously, uh, any last questions before we uh, ask Andrew for his last word? Uh, feel free to speak up right now. All right, Andrew, take us home. Yeah, thank you, John. So, you know, we talked about numerous use cases today, but there are so many more that we didn't even touch on. The, the, the limits to this are almost, almost limitless, right? As I look at what AI can do, you know, Barb, I, I get the whole um, taking what you put into ChatGPT, right? If I look it up, do I believe it? Most of the time I'll Google it and start checking sources, right? So I get that as, you know, as I'm trying to figure out uh, specifics within AI, you know, to be in this industry. So I, I, I fully understand the challenges, guys. We, we live it and breathe it every day. Dillman and I are here to help you. And we have great teams. We have, you know, Bianca, we have experts across the industry, depending on what you're wanting to look at. Reach out to us. I'm gonna put my email and Craig's email in the chat one more time. Feel free to shoot us a note. We're happy to talk to you. With that, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks. Folks, how was the expert talk and discussion today? Please take just a second, fill out the FT survey on your screen and let us know. Uh, today's post-show notes will hit your mailbox very soon with the slide deck you saw and the backup to it and other expert resources. And of course, all of your contact information so you can connect and go deeper. Next up, I'm from the experts, focus on data security and privacy. November 28th, we have the CIO for McKeeson U.S. Oncology Network, Mudazer Zahir. He's going to explore new ways they're handling and protecting sensitive patient data for their network of over 1,600 physicians and 600 clinics uh, across the U.S. December 12th, we have the director of Columbia University's Big Data Innovation Hub, Florence Hudson. She's going to share her insights on what to expect and a new series of international standards being developed to enable TIPS, that's trust, identity, privacy, protection, safety, and security. 
With over 2,400 members, 20,000 followers across 25 industries, FTA Network is going fast thanks to you and our sponsors. So please check out our library of expert content and never miss a show by subscribing to YouTube, Apple, Spotify channels. And be sure to register for more shows like this one on our website at fte.network. Folks, we're out of time. Thank you once again, Andrew, Craig, and team, and all of you from the experts. Have a great day.